few other subjects as well. Science literally comes from the Latin word to know, scientia, and so the pursuit of knowledge is something that God fully and completely endorses. From time to time, though, some of my students who had strong Christian or religious convictions would object to some of the material that I was teaching in class, and I encouraged them to deal with their objections in a very Christian manner, which is to say, one way that we love our enemies is by understanding what he or she thinks. And so if you disagree with something that's being taught in the book, one of your Christian responsibilities is to understand what's being taught in the book and not simply dismiss it out of hand. And while I never used my classroom lectern to preach at my students, in different ways I did make it clear that I was a Christian and I wanted to treat all of my students with love. Now, they didn't always feel the love. Mr. Henry was a strict teacher. I'm sure that comes as a shock to my own children. When I assign them a particularly hard uh, bit of homework or a very challenging exams, I usually gave essay exams. They didn't always see that, but I did truly try to live out my witness as a teacher by showing, especially showing them how much I love God's creation, how wonderful it really is. I tried to get outside as often as we could to go on trips and to see and study different things in nature. The reason being, and this was many years ago, but it's even more so true today, I don't, I don't think we pause and slow down enough to actually look at the message that God's sending us all around us. We're either too busy or too self-centered to notice that all of the created world is a book that reveals the glory and beauty and wisdom and goodness of God. My sermon this morning is called The Creation of the World, and I want to help you see a little bit of the glory and the beauty and the wisdom and the goodness of God in the world that God has made. Now, I know we've made a mess of his world. And so in studying his world, we need to take sin and fallenness and brokenness into account. But along the way, I want you to discover that the same God who made the world has sent his son into the world to redeem the sinful place that we have made it, and not then just to throw it away. Second Peter chapter 3, and talking about the great conflagration at the end of time, doesn't mean the world is going to be destroyed. It's going to be purified and renewed. This world, world without end, amen and amen, is the theater of the new heavens and the new earth. We're not going somewhere else though for a time until he returns bodily in his resurrected state, we will be separated from our bodies. But in the, in the full and final chapter of eternity, it will be a new heavens and a new earth, and we will dwell on this earth which he has made. He's not throwing it away. So then I'm going to talk this morning about the creation of the world with three points. First, I'll make the point that the origin of the creation of the world is God. And now this is a repeated point I'll be making in every single sermon through this 10-sermon series. I want to direct your attention to God. We're, we're, we've got blinders on and we're looking down and God wants us to look around and up and see that He is the source of the world that we live in. My second point will be that the time of the creation of the world was an ordinary week. 
And my third point will be that the purpose of the creation of the world is worship. Let's give our attention then to the reading of God's holy word in Genesis chapter 1. I'll begin at verse 3 and I will end at verse 25. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired word. Let's, let's listen to it. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit, which is their seed each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, which is their seed according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with, living, with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds, everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the reading of your word and for the goodness of the world that you have made, which it describes in such a vivid and unusual manner. I pray now that as this reading is explained through the preaching of the word, that the words of my mouth and the thoughts and questions and reflections and attention on each one of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, for we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.
Well, my first point then is that the origin of creation is God, and I will not tire of making this point throughout these series. In fact, I want to encourage you, maybe challenge you to see, do you hear me mention the, the source of all things is God in every one of these sermons? I will do so. But the point specifically this morning I want to say is that creation originates, origin means its source, it originates with God. This is important to stress in this morning's text for two reasons. One, God tells us how he did it. God's own word about his work is extremely important. If God is the creator, what he has said about what he did needs to capture our attention. He gets to say what he wants about his creation. He doesn't ask you what you want him to say about his creation, and then that's what he records in the creation story. He records what he wants to say about creation, which includes, by the way, recording it probably somewhere around 1500, 1400 B.C. So he recorded this story by the hand of Moses many, many centuries ago, and that's what he chose to do. He could have done it a number of ways, but this is what he's done. I think this should give us pause when we're listening to what people say about God's creation. Remembering that people are creatures, even though they may be smart, highly educated, with lots of letters after their name. What people say about God's creation is, at the end of the day, only a creature's commentary on God's work, not God himself. Though a person might, be, might have dedicated his or her entire life to the study of the world and the universe and life on earth and its intricacies, we need to be cautious about giving them too much room to speak to us about God's creation. I want to avoid two extremes here. One, only listening to God, extreme. Saying that we only listen to God, science doesn't matter, is a dangerous approach. This actually is a denial of a fundamental Christian truth which is the very same God who made the world, sustains it by its providential care through laws and mechanisms. He's given us a mind and a reason and a capacity and intelligence and a curiosity to explore and plumb the depths of his world as image bearers of God. So to close our eyes and our minds off of scientific discoveries simply because God said it, that settles it for me, is not a faithful Christian approach. We can't say only listen to God, science doesn't matter. But the other stream we want to avoid is only listening to science. This is the simplistic position of atheist Richard Dawkins, who says it's either God or science. And of course, he chooses science. It's true, you can't say only listen to God, science doesn't matter, but neither can you say science is always true or what we think about God always has to match what science discovers. So we're talking about the origin of creation is in God and the first important, the reason that's important this morning is because what God has to say about his creation is important. But the second reason that I wanna stress the origin is in God is because God's attributes are seen in his creation. Think of it as a potter leaving a fingerprint on the bottom of the pot that he or she has just spun. Or think about an artist putting her or his personality 
into the work of art or an author who writes in characters into the story that resemble or have echoes of certain aspects of my life. God's attributes can be seen in creation. By studying creation, we actually learn quite a bit about who God is. Here are three attributes I'd like you to consider. First of all, God is good. And we saw it in the text in, in six refrains or five this morning. We over and over and over again, five or six times, it is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. That's exactly what we'd expect from a good God to make a good and beautiful creation. Things in creation are bad, I admit. If we look outside and we look in our lives and in the world today, certainly if you read the newspaper, there's not a a shortage of bad news. But that's not God's fault. Everything that God has done is good. Two verses capture this in my mind beautifully. One is in James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. He doesn't change. There's no shifting shadows with him. And then the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 4 and 5. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. I'm calling this a creation-positive viewpoint. We, we engage and embrace all that God has made because it is good. Uh, St. Augustine had this phrase, and I, I don't have time to go into it more this morning, but love God and do as you please. Provided that you recognize that God is the Lord of our lives and he's the creator of the world, we're free to, to pursue and to dive in, to plunge into his creation with abandon. Christianity is fundamentally a creation-positive religion. But not only is God good, another attribute that we see, if it's a fingerprint, maybe the thumbprint is the goodness of God, maybe the the index finger on, on the pot is the wisdom of God. God is wise. Now, wisdom refers to the skill and the, of a harmoniously constructed feature or the skill of living in a, harmo- a harmonious way. Wisdom is an attribute of God that's related to the skill with which he does his works. We even see that in this, in this story of creation. There's apparently three chambers that are created consecutively on day one and day two and day three. Think of them as creation realms. And then in day four, five, and six, we see God populating those realms with creatures that rule in the midst of those realms. So he creates the air on day one, if you will, and then on day four, the birds populate the air and, and so forth. God is wise. We also see his wisdom in sustaining the creation that he made. For the, the creation of the world entailed mechanisms like gravity and, and electromagnetism and lots of other things. And these processes, we might call them laws, are the means by which God has created and sustained the world. But God isn't just someone who winds up the, the, the clock and then walks away. No, in creation, God has actually actively sustaining it moment by moment providentially he's present in creation we see his wisdom i love psalm 104 we sung it this morning here's verse 24 O lord how manifold are your works in wisdom you have made them all the earth is full of your creatures 
So as you look at creation, you, if we're looking at this, this fingerprint of the index finger, you should expect to see the wisdom of God, say, in, in the structure of the eye, in the way that the, the image of light comes and strikes the back of the eye with the rods and the cones and the firing of the electrons, and that sends a, a nerve signal down the optic nerve. And it triggers in your brain somehow that you see something. And if you have trouble with your eyesight or if you've lost your eyesight, you know what a blessing it is to have eyes that can see. How does this work? God in his wisdom, or the wisdom of a baby in a mother's womb. Or, as we've seen in just the two recent births in our congregation, the wisdom that God has given uh, doctors to, to sustain children who have uh, a crisis birth of, of various kinds. So God is good, God is wise, and then third attribute I want us to know, we might think of this as maybe the ring finger uh, on, on the pot. God has a plan. His plan includes the things he has made. In our text this morning, you can see in the sequence of days, God appears to be moving towards a goal. And I mentioned the creation realms or the creation kingdoms and the creation kings. There's a, there's a discernible pattern there. But there's also a pattern in the sense that creation ends with the creation of man. And I paused there. I didn't, I didn't go into the text in verse 26. We'll get to that next Sunday. But creation appears to be a habitation created for mankind, for men and women. And God's purpose in making creation is to situate his image bearers as the kings and queens of creation. That's his purpose. He has a plan for his world. He started with a formless and empty earth, and he proceeds to fill the earth with forms and with creatures, ultimately ending with man. What is man, Psalm 8, that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you've taken notice of him, You've set him a little lower the angels and crowned him with glory and honor and set him over all your works. That is God's purpose. The creation of man is the crown and glory of all of God's creative works. He's good, he's wise, and he has a plan. And that's what we need to know about the origin of creation of the world as God. My second point this morning then is the time for the creation of the world is six days. Now, this is a complicated subject for some people, and I could certainly spend my entire sermon discussing it. We could have a whole series of lectures this fall studying the intricacies of the creation week, comparing current findings in science and physics and biology and astronomy, geology, looking at how science has changed over the years and the current scientific positions and even divisions within the scientific community. Some say this and some say that. But I'm going to be brief. Two brief points about why I believe this text teaches that the time for the creation of the world is six days. First of all, the days of creation form a sequence in our passage. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, seventh day. This sequence, and it's not just a sequence of any number, it's a sequence of six days plus a resting day, shows us that God is pointing us to an ordinary human work week. This is repeated in the sixth command, or rather the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, where it says that our, cre- our, our work of six days and our rest of one day is to be patterned after God's work and God's rest. 
God intends us by this sequence to understand a logical sequence, meaning there is an order, as I've talked about, a purpose that he goes from one thing to the next, but also, I believe, a chronological sequence. It moves from simple to complex. It's chronological because each day is attached to a number, and this combination is found nowhere else in the Bible except where the creation week is referred to. I think this rules out, and I'll touch on this in a moment, the view of Genesis chapter 1 that sees it as an a-sequential or an unsequenced sort of series of, of creation acts where the sequence isn't important. Sometimes this is called the framework view. I also believe that this text teaches not only that the days of creation are a sequence, but that the days of creation are ordinary 24-hour days. Now, in studying this text, we need to note a couple of things. First, our, our passage shows us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, that the word day has two meanings. Take a look. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God called the light, verse 5, day, and the darkness he called night. So that first instance of day in distinction from night, refers to a 12-hour period of time. Can you see that? So the first instance of the word day in our text is not a 24-hour day. It is a 12-hour day. But the second instance, and then the repeated instances following this, I believe, do refer to 24-hour days. And there was evening, that is to say the end of the first day, and morning, that is to say the beginning of the next day, some total of which the first day. So by referring to evening and morning in each successive creation day, we are being shown by God in the scriptures that these are ordinary 24-hour days. Now day has another meaning in our text. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested the seventh day from all his work. Now, there's no evening and morning in this day. So it appears in reading this that as God has finished his work of creation, it's a perpetual day. It's an eternal day. And indeed, God still rests from the work that he created in those six days. He is no longer creating the world. So in this sense, the eternal day of God's eternal Sabbath rest continues. Now in John chapter 5, Jesus says, my father is still working in, until now and I am working in reference to Jesus performing a certain miracle on the Sabbath. What this work is referring to in John chapter 5 is not that God has somehow stopped his rest of creation, but it's speaking, I believe, of his providential care of his creation. And so by performing a miracle on the Sabbath, Jesus is providentially by God's power and with God's blessing, providentially caring for his creation even on the, on the day of rest. And there's a third use of day as well, as if that isn't enough. In verse 4, which goes beyond the text that I read, verse 4 of chapter 2, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This views the entire creation as a season, if you will, or a period of time. Day referring to the whole act of creation from beginning to end. 
I think this goes all the way back to Genesis 1.1 and concludes essentially at Genesis 1.31. But having said all of that, the fact that there are different uses of the word day in our passage, we're asking how long was the creation week itself? And in each of the creation days, we have evening and we have morning. God wants us to know these are ordinary days. These are ordinary 24-hour days. In a few minutes, I'm going to consider some different perspectives than this one, but for now, I want to move to my third point. So the origin of the creation of the world is God. The time for the creation of the world is six days. My third point this morning is the purpose of creation. The purpose of creation is to worship. Man is made in the image of God. We're going to see this next week, and part of that image is to work and worship for his honor and glory. But this morning we need to see that as God has created the world, he's created it for worship. God's works reveal himself. I've said this already. And the reason he reveals himself is because the highest and greatest function of a creature is to worship his creator. This is the purpose of all creation. Creation exists to worship God. What I'm saying is that studying creation isn't just debating scientists or skeptics about how long it took, although there's a time and a place for such debates, and I welcome them. I welcome them in this church. But our debates and discussions about the details, the nuts and bolts of creation, should not take our eyes off of the fact that he created all that he did for worship. One important thing on this point is this. Worship isn't just what happens at church. Worship is a life that's lived for God. Just so we can talk about a 24-hour day, well, we have a 24 hours of worship. Now, I'm, I'm a big fan of making Sunday a priority in your lives and setting aside especially Sunday morning for, for worship because this is when we gather as a congregation to worship. I want to encourage all of you to make Sunday a higher priority than it currently is. In a busy, work-a-day world, it's a 24-7 it's a world. The news cycle doesn't end. Your cell phones don't seem to turn off. Emails keeps coming in. Sunday morning needs to be a priority for you. Indeed, all of Sunday needs to be a priority for you. But worship doesn't end with the benediction on Sunday. Worship doesn't end when Sunday night rolls around, which is when we end the Lord's Day at our house, or Monday morning. Worship continues all through the week. It's how God wants you to live every day in his creation. He wants you to worship as you study. He wants you to worship as you play. He wants you to worship as you go to work, as you do your work. He wants you to worship on vacation. He wants you to take a vacation. And as you rest in a, in a, in a significant way, not just for, say, a Sunday, but for a week, you rest from your ordinary labors on a vacation, whatever that looks like. We're to worship. He wants you to worship as you eat together as a family. Family worship is important, by the way, and making reading the Bible as, as moms and dads with your children, or if you're unmarried, reading, reading the Bible yourself as, as, a, as a regular part of your day. A friend of mine works in a, in a company where he got to patent an invention as part of his company. And he gives all glory to God for the, for the thing that he invented for his company. Now, no one's bought any, any of these inventions yet, but he invented something. And that's worship. We worship as you create a piece of music or perform a piece of music. 
We worship as you invest yourself in a poem or in a work of art. This point, the purpose of creation is worship, is challenging for those of you who try to follow God in a world which he has made but has largely turned their back on him. I heard recently about someone who in the middle of a pastoral prayer stood up and turned his back on the preacher. Well, that's a great picture of what the world has done to God. We've stood up in the middle of his symphony of worship and we've turned our back on him. We don't want anything to do with him. And so you as people who either are seeking God or who've discovered that God is the center of of our lives and of this world, how do you worship God at all times when your employer is hostile to the faith or is, is giving you bad assignments because he or she knows you're a Christian? How do you worship God in your studies if you attend a school where God is mocked and dishonored on a regular basis? How do you worship God as a student when you're studying things that specifically violate God's truth? These are hard questions, but what I can say is that since the creation is the work of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and since the Son of God came clothed in human flesh, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, born in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He is the firstborn of a new creation. And you yourselves are the first fruits of this new creation in Christ. He gives you the ability. He, he empowers you, strengthens you. He guides you on how you are to worship him in these challenging contexts. It's a battle sometimes. And he will give you the equipment, the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, the Spirit of God in you, guiding you and leading you. He'll give you the words to say when you're confronted or give you the wisdom to not say anything if you need to keep your peace. The purpose of creation at the beginning is being restored in Christ. And as the first fruits of this creation, you're working out, you're modeling, you're displaying, you're like the salt and light of Jesus' beatitudes, shining into a world that has forgotten its maker. Now, I said I was going to address a couple of objections that I've heard, and I want to do this before I conclude my sermon this morning, objections that I've heard or even have wrestled with myself about the days of creation being ordinary 24-hour days. Now, some of these objections may not concern some of you. Some of them, they may go right over your head. Some of you, 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 you read this passage and you see God made the world in six days and that's enough. But for some of you, this is a really challenging area. I want to recognize that. You may work in the biological sciences, or you may have an interest. You may be studying geology, or maybe you work in physics or astrophysics, astronomy. And in these fields, understanding how God created the world, has, is a, you have a higher responsibility. Plus, you're confronted on a more regular basis with arguments that re, that consistently say that God is is not real, that God is a figment of our imagination. Some of you have teachers who push an agenda in the classroom when it comes to science or physics or chemistry. Well, one objection I've heard, getting down to it then, is that some struggle with the view that I've expressed that these are six ordinary days because light is created on day one but then the sun and the moon and the stars aren't created until day four. How can there be light 
as well as days, evening and morning, and days one, two, and three, if there's no body in, in the skies that, by which we measure evening and morning and light and so forth. People who see this apparent paradox in the text have concluded that creation might not be sequential. I mentioned that view earlier, that it might be more of a, a thematic. These are sort of a summary of what happened, but not necessarily in order. This is a more of a poetic view, they say. Sometimes this is called a poetic view or a framework view. I disagree with this view, though, because of what I already mentioned about the sequence of the days. And I've also noticed in the Bible that light is present at the end of creation in the book of Revelation when there is no sun. In fact, one sign of the consummation of the ages is that the sun somehow or other disappears. God himself provides the light for the world. So it makes sense to me, possibly, that if that's the way creation ends in Revelation chapter 22, then it makes sense that creation begins in the same manner, where there is light being carried out without a sun. At this point, I have to say that the biggest hurdle for us is believing that there is a God, not whether or not God can cause light without an astral body known as a sun. I also want to point out, and I actually just noticed this as I was reading the text this morning, on day four, in verse 16, it says, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. So these are appointed as rulers over the day and the night, not necessarily creators of the day and the night. Now, I don't necessarily know what that means, but what the text is telling me is that there's a ruling function to these astral bodies that is somewhat distinct from, for example, their actual sort of chemical production of the quality or quantity of light. A second concern that people have about this text is the age of the, age of the earth or of the universe and the creation of the world. I mentioned this last week. There's no time stamp on Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Now, I happen to think it's very rapidly following on with the creation of the world, that Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 happen in a very compact amount of time, say an hour or a day. But some people think that this could point to a very long period of time, so that the creation week, it may represent six 24-hour days, but the period of time in Genesis 1, 1, and 2 could be a very long period of time. Still others, and I'll end with this one, is called the day-age view. See, the days of Genesis 1 is not 24-hour days, but of ages. This is along the lines of what we see elsewhere in Scripture. Peter says in his second epistle that a day for God is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Psalm 90 says, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday or when it, when it is past or as a watch in the night. So that would be a watch in the night is four hours. So that gives us, you know, at least, you know, four to 10,000 years per day, potentially. Now, I don't agree with this view because of what I've already mentioned about evening and morning describing a regular human day. I also don't agree with this view because it may be in danger of allowing science to speak too loudly in matters where God has appeared to speak clearly. 
We don't want to make the mistake of hitching our wagon of faith to the latest discoveries of science. Now, the church has made this mistake before. In the Middle Ages, the unbelieving pagan scientific establishment held that the earth was the center of the universe. This is called the Aristotelian view. Aristotle was not a Christian. And the church, for whatever reason, wanting to be relevant or meaningful or hip or cool or progressive, decided that the Aristotelian view of the universe was what it was going to adopt, sort of, you know, lock, stock, and barrel, as the saying goes. And so when Nicholas Copernicus came around, and then Galileo as well, suggesting that, in fact, the earth was not the center of the universe, it was not a a Terra-centric universe, but a heliocentric solar system, well, we had problems. The Copernican Revolution came with casualties. One of them was that Galileo was locked in luxurious quarters of his friend's apartment and fed like a king. Now, I say this just to point out that for all the the media exposure of how badly the church treated Galileo, he was actually treated pretty well. It did take the church a long time to vindicate, this is Roman Catholic Church now, and to so-called pardon Galileo for his heresy, but they eventually came around and did so. No, we want to be careful and realize that science is constantly changing. For example, science now agrees that the universe had a beginning. That hasn't always been the case. That happens to align with the Bible, doesn't it? The Bible says that the universe had a beginning as well. So we now see, at least on this point, some concordance between science and Scripture. As to the age of the earth, there's quite a bit of tension. There's quite a bit of discord between at least my perspective on a young earth and a, and a very short, simple creation week, and some ways to construe the scientific measurements. But I'd like to suggest a couple of scientific bits of data that might actually point to the fact that earth is quite young. For instance, the speed of the expanding universe, assuming the Big Bang is true, would have to have been 10 to the 22nd power faster than the speed of light. Matter would have had to travel faster than light for a certain period of time, unless, for example, the speed of light has not always been constant, in which case, if the speed of light has changed, something that science may reveal in time, it's possible that one of the reasons that things look so far away is that the current speed of light is much slower than it was in the initial grinding out of the universe, even if you presuppose a godless Big Bang. Another bit of data that's helpful to think about that might point to a a young earth or a a literal six-day creation week is that by a factor of billions, that's with the letter B, even if the Big Bang timescale were granted, there's not enough time for gravity to have caused the accumulation of the elementary particles, what the astrophysicists call the Big Bang debris, into the galaxy clusters on the scale that we currently observe them. There's not enough time, even if the universe is 19 billion years old, for the, for the Big Bang debris to have accumulated in the quantities that we see it. It would have to be 10 to the 22 billion more years. So maybe there's another reason that we see all this debris accumulated in, in, in galaxies that we do. I'm told that the Earth is slowing down because of the drag caused by tidal forces. As a result, the Moon's orbit slowly and imperceptibly has to become larger in order to maintain the angular momentum between the Earth and Moon system. 
But if you work backward based on what we currently measure, assuming that, that there's no input to the system, you know, scientists are, are quick to remind us that energy can be, neither be created nor destroyed. And entropy, things tend to be slow down. So if this had been going on uniformly for the age of our solar system, 4.6 billion years, then the moon would have to have been much farther from the Earth now than it is, even if it started in virtual contact with the Earth. And finally, if you extrapolate backwards and measure the carbon-14 that's built up in the atmosphere, the maximum age of the Earth is 10,000 years. Now, I'm not a scientist, and this is not a science lecture. Some of you have drifted off to sleep. You can wake up now. I certainly might be proven wrong. Some of you may be a, a physics major or maybe a physicist yourself, and you can show me how some of these scientific uh, facts that I've quoted to you, I didn't quote correctly. I encourage you to do that. I'm not claiming to be smarter than you. I'm not claiming to be a, an expert in the history of the universe in these things. I encourage exploration of these questions, but I want us to allow the scriptures to say what the scriptures say, and not to be led astray by concerns about the latest developments in science, almost all of which is motivated today with a godless, scientistic, naturalistic, materialistic, atheistic ob objective and purpose. And it's hard to separate out the facts from science from the agenda of science, but we need to work on it. What we have in Genesis 1 is not a poem, it's a historical account. It's a spare, succinct, strikingly concise account of how God made the world in a week. I don't understand it fully. I still have more questions. I think I, I read at least four books this week on this from all different perspectives. I also want to say that even in our own board of elders, we have different views on these things. Not like that. All of your elders are committed to the supernatural creation of the world by God, by his word. We're all created, committed to the supernatural creation of man from the dust, not through an evolutionary process. We're committed to the inerrant, infallible, inspired word. And we're committed to guiding you in these things, even if we may have different views on the exact time of the creation week. I want to conclude this morning with a couple of applications. First of all, the world is under God's control. The world you live in may seem like it's out of control. It, it is, in many ways. But God has a purpose for the world in creating it, and he has not abandoned those purposes. It may not be in your control, but it is in God's control. Second, sin is your biggest challenge. In this created world, the biggest challenge you face is not understanding Genesis 1. It's sin and rebellion which rises in your heart. For this, you need a savior. This is not abstract. This is not esoteric. It's as simple as this. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you could never live. He died on the cross, and he rose again supernaturally, miraculously, not metaphorically, on the third day. And his resurrection is life for all who believe. And as I said in the beginning of my sermon this morning, God's world is good. I want you to dive in. I want you to plunge in to the deep end. Explore it in all, all of its nooks and crannies. Ask questions. Be curious. 
your curiosity, your inquiry, your intelligence, your thirst for knowledge, these are all gifts from God. We want to encourage education in our church. We want to encourage study and learning. We want to encourage honest questions, asking good questions. Specifically, as a Christian, I want to encourage you to be the first fruits of the new creation. Try to improve this world in some way. Don't leave it the same. Every morning, my mom wakes up and prays, God, help me make a difference today. I want you to do the same. Make a difference in this world, this good world that God has made, whether you're a mother, a citizen, employer, or worker. And to help you do this, I want to return to Psalm 104. We sung it this morning. I mentioned it briefly. I'm going to read uh, a longer passage of Psalm 104, but I, I want to encourage you also to return to Psalm 104 today, perhaps as, uh, as an individual. Go on a hike this afternoon. Uh, read it out loud. Get a version of it that you can sing it. Listen to it. Maybe study it with your friends or study it as brothers and sisters or as parents and children. Psalm 104, I'll end with this. Verse 24 to 35. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. They look to you, Lord, that you would give them their food in due season. And when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will give praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. And a warning, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your marvelous creation. Thank you that you've created the world in six days. You've left your fingerprints all over this creation. You've revealed yourself. And you've done it that we might worship you. Forgive us for being poor stewards of the earth. Forgive us for being poor stewards of our lives. Make it clear to us what our calling is. May it be within the guardrails of your created purposes for us. Each of us has a special purpose. May we know what that is and may we waste no time in getting to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.